Welcome to the Chalk Talk Gym podcast, where we explore insights into healthcare that help uncover new opportunities for growth and success. I'm your host, Jim Jordan. Welcome back to the show. Our guest today is Holly Kalor, and she joins us with over 30 years of nursing experience. She spans clinical care, leadership, revenue cycle management, and nurse coaching. Through her journey, Holly has navigated hospital mergers and reinvented her career several times and advocated for positive change in healthcare. Today, as a revenue cycle consultant and nurse educator pursuing a master's degree, she offers a rare blend of clinical and business perspective. Holly shares how nurses can pivot their careers, lead teams through disruption, improve reimbursement and quality of care through better documentation, and she also talks about some ideas on how to address the nursing shortage. With unprecedented industry change at the horizon, Holly provides sage advice, how to create a culture for communication, continuous learning, and grace. Holly, tell us and the audience a little bit more about yourself. Jim, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I have been in nursing for over 30 years, and I think we'll just keep it at 30. Graduated straight out of high school. I went right into college, got my associate degree in nursing, and I really thought I was done. Great. I've got my nursing degree and move on. So I seem to go back to school every 10 to 20 years got my bachelor's in management and a bachelor's in health administration. I'm currently in school pursuing my master's in nursing for many reasons, and we can get into that a little later. But I'm a strange nurse because I love clinical, but I really love business and revenue cycle and understanding how we can be sustainable. So I was the weird nurse who says, should we really do that? That seems like we're wasting supplies. Did you make sure to put the sticker on the card so we can charge for that? And so it's been a calling since my first job. When in my day, when we graduated, you had to go in a skilled nursing facility. Acute care wouldn't take you. And so two months into my job, I'm thinking, I'm not meeting the criteria I was taught and give medication within two hours. And I'm not complying. And, and so I had my first test, what's the values I'm going to be practicing? And I just thought I'm compromising patient care. I've got to, I've got to take that chance and address it with the director before I pass my 90 days <laughs> evaluation. And I told her, I said, I don't feel comfortable in our, our current practice. And I explained why. And she said, what should we do? And I'm thinking, I'm two and a half months out of school. Why is the director asking me? But I'll, sure, I'll tell her, I think you need a nurse who can do rounds and hire an LVN. And she said, great, you're now that charge nurse and we'll have the LVNs. And I improved the quality of their practice and the LVNs absolutely resented me. So that was- our, Not all our audience are nurses. So what's an LVN? Oh, licensed vocational nurse. So they're almost able to practice in the same way that an RN registered nurse can. But they're not able to administer IV medication. And it, there's just a few things mm -hmm. that they're not able to do. But early on, I, I learned being a young nurse, one, my patients asked for the nurse because they didn't think I could be the nurse. And then the nurses, the LVNs who had been in the field for so long, they really resented someone coming in and then being in charge. And so I learned to look for the why and why they would want to work with me. 
and was able to get through that okay, where they didn't mind work for me. And then the director left. And the administrator said, here's a stack of TARS. So what that is, a, it was a stack of papers for Medi-Cal billing. And they had been denied a lot. And here I'm new in school. And she said, if you can get any money back for us going through the chart, we appreciate it. So I was fortunate to learn that early on, your document, your documentation counts, what you do in explaining the good care. Reimbursement is not a, a scam. It's appropriate just as we do our taxes and we have deductions. So I always kept that business side in the back of my mind as I continued on. You can't, if you don't have revenue, you can't service your community, right? That's right. The, end, the end of the story. That's the situation. Right. So that's an interesting perspective that your documentation and your clinical workflow don't always uh, tie in, in learning how that works. But prior to this, so you, you started hands-on, you moved through the administration ranks, and then you had an experience with coaching. Tell me about that. I found people would come to me since eighth grade, <laughs> whether it's, how come the guys like you? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know, I'm just myself. And the people who were curious about nursing, wanted to know how to get into nursing and should they. I did a, a webinar on reigniting the heart for nursing and had someone from Canada who was part of the Cirque du Soleil and COVID, it was shut down. And just, I've got to go back into nursing. What do I do? And so we'd walk through how to think ahead. I think nurses are in survivor mode. And so they're not thinking intentionally and strategic. What's my next move? And how does this step get me to where I want to be? And what's going to be fun is this June I'm going to graduate with my master's in nursing along with two of my coaching clients, if you will. One is going to graduate with their associate in nursing and the other one's graduating with their bachelor's in nursing. So we'll be marching together. So that'll be sweet. So it, it seems to me it's interesting as I watch, we were talking earlier, I have two daughters that are into healthcare. One, one's a nurse, but I've had lots of family members that are nurses over the years and I've done a lot of rounds. And, and one of the things that you see with nurses is their obviously amazing with their patients, right? And so in their mind, that's their customer. But then they walk out and they have to deal with their peers. And sometimes that always doesn't work out that as well. Is that Was that part of your practice is getting people to work together and learn how to play as a team? I think the bullying that I experienced actually even in nursing school really has been my passion. So as a leader, I've been in leadership for 20 years. And I always tell my employees, if I don't tell them, they know. I said, you are people first and your employees second. And if I ever communicate or treat you in any way out of that order, please address that with me. And people have families, they have lives, there's crises. And if you don't acknowledge their humanness, they will be the robots that you treat them to be. They will clock in and clock out and give you barely what you're paying for. And so when what I found is nurses, I finally learned the nurses that gave me the hardest time, they were either gutless or they no longer knew that much information. They were just going off of what they've always done for the last 30, 40 years. And so when you ask those questions as a new nurse, as an OB, and I said, okay, can you tell me, I'm watching the fetal monitor and, and it's dropping down. 
can you explain the physiology? What's going on as the baby lives in circulation? Is like, so I'm wanting to know. And they're like, just use your common sense. And I thought, there's, there's no common sense on this graph. And I went, oh, they don't know. So I think what happens is if the nurses eat their young, that was pretty active. And it sounds like it hasn't gone away. They're uncomfortable with their knowledge or their standing. They don't want you to bump them from their position or authority. So rather than collaborative, where all the tide rises, all boats, that hasn't been a nursing practice. So I think what's striking to me is in the late 80s and and early 90s, it was this push in the United States to improve manufacturing and bringing different techniques, whether it's just in time or Kaizen or any of those techniques. And the first step of that was creating a culture of, they started out calling these things quality circles. But I remember at the time, we had to train so many senior leaders who were just not trained in the importance of the team is to the process and the equipment as to the result. And I think that we're just starting to do that in the healthcare space. And ironically, some of the tools and some of the techniques that I see people using are literally pulling forward from the the 1990s, meaning we're still in healthcare very much in the back from that perspective. So what do you think the solution is? Do you think some companies, like when I was at Johnson and Boston Scientific McKesson, they had senior vice presidents or vice presidents of either continuous improvement or quality, something like that, whose job was to focus on processes for planning flow deviation issues and culture, quality culture and training people. I know from Mayo Clinic and Mass General and a couple of the bigger institutions are starting to do that, but do you see any of these smaller nursing organizations isolating people to do that? No. If they do, it's for diversity, inclusion, and still it's based on labels. We have Mm -hmm. to have a program and a person so that we can say we have a thing that we're focused on these labels. Yeah. And so when I wanted to understand my people, so I went and got DISC certified. So that's a personality Mm -hmm. assessment. So I understand, oh, okay, this person is reacting or this person asks so many questions because they're a C. They need to understand the detail of it. And I need to honor that need And once they lock in on the details of the information they have, they're going to soar. So I think that even if you have that person, you have to have the culture to support it. Otherwise, it's just a silo of a cheerleader over there trying to help. And so when I came into an organization, low employee morale, low productivity, low engagement. And when I, I was assigned a new another state to add to my scope. And I flew in and I'm sitting there in the office and one person's just on her computer. She's not even turning around to look at me. And the other one who is looking, she says, what are you here for? I said, I'm excited to meet my new team. And she says, you're probably here to fire us. Okay, why should I? What? Why should I fire you? We had to work through that history. I had to listen to them, hear them, validate their perception. And then I said, okay, so moving forward, we're going to leave history behind us. Are we going to build a new process together? Are we going to partner for your success? And I was like, what? It was just a whole new concept. They turned around. I brought the whole revenue cycle engagement scores higher than 
any other team. And so I was more of a solo people valuing person. And so when it came to mergers, acquisitions, and the bigger company put their people in, my employees were devastated and literally crying. And they said, one, like, you you changed my life. Another one's, I am finally comfortable in my skin. I'm okay with who I am because you've shown me it's okay to be who I am. And so it's a soft skill that in OB, they said, it's nice that you have these warm and fuzzy skills. We're not sure this is the right field for you. And so for the longest time, especially in leadership, if you can pivot tables and excel, you're highly valued. If you're nice to your employees, so that's why I did a, an online webinar, Convert Your Workplace Culture from Toxic Teams to Teaming Troops, and interviewed different people from HR and different perspectives. What can we do different? And so I think if we can create a wave of, we have to invest in our people, not for our benefit, but for theirs. And if you treat somebody and you value someone, you'll get a whole person and a dedicated person. And they're not going to leave you for $3 an hour for someone else down the street. Interesting. So today you're doing what? You're focusing on revenue cycle management and bringing that that people culture and that alignment into the solving the problem of revenue cycle management? So what I do as a revenue cycle consultant is I go in and assess and analyze a, a current clinical documentation integrity program. And or I look at the fact that there are only two stars on the Medicare website and and look to where we can start a program and where we should priority our focus. So documentation for your listeners, it tells the story. So the patient has an accurate medical record, that documentation converts to codes and billing and so forth. But it's not just about money, it's about quality. So that the government says, you know what, we really should pay the hospitals more who give better quality. That's not a bad idea. So you just mean you need to capture that better quality. If you don't, then there may be an area where you actually need to improve the quality. I With COVID, and I'll try not to get too controversial, but people would say, oh, hospitals are just saying patients had COVID so they could get paid more. And my my team during that time, it's so far from the truth, we would absolutely make sure that COVID was documented and tested and validated and verified before it made it in the chart. The hospitals did receive extra reimbursement for that code for a period of time, but they did not put it in the chart for reimbursement purposes. I'm, I try to be real about healthcare. We have problems. We need to improve healthcare, but, but healthcare does take care of us and we need to take care of healthcare. Well, I think that, so to, to maybe give an example of that, but CMU, we do capstone projects like a master's thesis with the team for various folks. And obviously I was involved in healthcare. And so there was someone that was not getting the right quality rankings that, that they were interested in. And so that's an end result that is money, but the real question is about outcomes and people's health, right? And so when we looked into it, this particular geographic location had gone through a, a really significant period of gentrification. And so what it had done, this was a Medi- Medicaid population, it had pushed those folks out of the city. They didn't have access to public transportation. 
and people were trying to schedule the pap smear and the breast exam on different days. And at the end of the analysis, what it basically was is a problem. And so what the company ended up doing is they pulled together an RV, they went into the neighborhoods, they served coffee, they had a doctor's office inside, and they did these two tests. Wonderful. And the community came out and the mothers would be holding each other's children or mm-hmm. playing with the children while the other one went in and, and the score went up. And so I think to to your point about creativity and just listening, that's a financial result. We can look at that and say, okay, reimbursement went up, quality went up. But the fact of the matter is we had to look at the community. We had to understand the problem. And obviously the thing we were trying to do is solve breast cancer and solve cervical cancer, right? That's the intention of it. So I think it it comes down to details and people, right? To execute that. Yeah. The 14 years in case management, many of our patients had to drive over very windy hill. Mm -hmm. So if their brakes and their car can't make it up the hill, if they couldn't afford gas, that was definitely a problem. So we had vans, not, we weren't a mobile unit, but to bring them in for their treatment, especially the cancer patients who want to make sure that we could have a regular cycle for them. I mean, that's, I, I think we're finding more and more people as we start to mature, trying to understand these things. My my father was part of a new, he was in the middle of Gulf country in, in Florida, which was very mm-hmm. rural at, at when it started. And so they actually put in a new healthcare system over a decade ago. But what they did is they integrated the inpatient, the outpatient and the home care solutions. And I remember when my dad took sick in his final days, he would have an occupational therapist and a physical therapist coming to his house in the morning. And then by one, we were in with his pulmonologist and he had all the information, all the results from that morning, which was rather impressive. Mm-hmm. But you could find some of the top institutions in this country not having that. It's just so happened that. So I, th- I think we have a, a long way to go. Mm-hmm. So what challenges do you see these organizations facing with their solutions matching the future of healthcare when you're looking at, at particularly today for you, revenue cycle management solutions? Just one single sliver is I'm in my master's program because my bachelor's, okay, I've got an associate in nursing. I need to expand my knowledge. I'm going to do a bachelor's in management and business. And I'm going to do a bachelor's in health administration. So I can know the full picture. But I found with magnet hospitals and many health systems, I because I didn't have a bachelor's in nursing, they wouldn't hire me. So I'm like, you're short staff. I have this wealth of experience. I have several initials. But because of that, so I think in some ways we've limited ourselves as we've tried to improve quality and standards. We haven't looked at the downstream effects that there's a whole host of nurses who may not have the bachelor's in nursing or master's in nursing. So that's limited staffing. So revenue cycle, I think if we raise everyone's awareness, not just the C-suite and the immediate director level, that we really teach I try to teach my staff all the way down. So in case management, discharge planner, she she was a CNA, so a certified nursing assistant. That's the lowest certification you can have. And I taught her, I said, this med surge unit, this is your business. So run your business how you think is appropriate and efficient with good patient care. I'm not going to micromanage you. And so she was so empowered. She would check with the, the case management nurse when she needed to. But every person on my team saw their responsibility as their business. 
their money to save, their money to make their quality of care to insurers performed. So I didn't have patients discharged out to bus stations. And I also had no problem addressing physicians. So when I saw toxic culture from physicians towards my staff who were trying to do the right thing for the patient, I addressed it. And I said, I appreciate your input and your response is not as professional as we'd hope for a collegial experience or whatever. And he's like, nobody talks to him that way. And, and he's actually right. Okay, I want to do better. And he never disrespected my team after that. And so when you respect each other, regardless of your level, everyone can contribute to the most improved you can have. We can have efficiencies. And I think that we can no longer consider what we did. Things used to last five years and three years and two years pushing it now. You can no longer say, but that, you know, we've always, and this is how we you just don't even say that. We have to be innovative and resilient and agile. And what we plan may not land exactly, but how can we pivot quickly? I think when you look at transformation, is I always think there's two components of it. So it's the details of your existing system, right? So there's a lot of knowledge and details. And when you think of the world's best brands from a consumer perspective, mm-hmm. they're consistent, right? And you trust them. And I look at how does... Amazon with its return policy be so exceptional since we're finishing the holiday season here, right? How how they they know what I might and might not be interested. That's a lot of details. And that has not historically been, that attention detail hasn't historically been embraced between getting that information out of nurses and, and people dealing with the patients and, and administration. And the answer under such pressures, so you have shortages, so you have pressure on the nursing side, you have Pricing pressures. So you're talking about reimbursement. I think I've mentioned this before on this podcast, but the average hospital is maybe running at 4% profit. That's, um, up in, that's a good hospital. That's a good hospital. And in any other industry, <laughs> yeah. in any other industry, you'd close it down, right? It right. wouldn't be profitable enough. Yeah. You do have this tension between administration and this tension that it comes down to the culture of continuous improvement. And then I thought we also need some radical transformation, which I think over the next decade or so with artificial intelligence and mm. the concept of real-time healthcare system that that we'll see. Okay. With the challenges that you see, tell us about a, a time when you personally had to adapt or shift your strategy quickly as you come up this path that you've been on. That looks like a little zigzag. Yeah. So, so during the merger that was working its way down to the director level and COVID hit at the same time, I sustained my first layoff. And I was, for 34 years or whatever it was at that time, I'd never been laid off. And believe me, there have been many hospitals that that had that going on, but I always have tried to provide as much value as possible so that wouldn't happen. So it was a startling time and an assessment. Was I a good leader? And what do I need to do differently? And do I even want to be in nursing? So I sympathize with, we're losing a lot of nurses. They used to trickle out before COVID. Then they started running out post during COVID and post-COVID. So I thought I was going to leave nursing. And I went into real estate. And I found it was still very cool that I was able to help people meet their needs and their goal. And working with a physician, we could zigzag back and forth and have them in a house and purchase in a week. And then what happened was... I went and advocated for some students at the nursing college. And I said, and let me do a commercial for 
our nursing instructors are not paid enough. They, if we even had a small percentage of what entertainment feel, these professors take half of what they could get on the clinical setting. And they're having to have a second job to pay their mortgage. So they're stressed and they're not able to put as much into students. And so anyway, so I was there and I just was given a piece in my mind that these instructors are just clocking it in. Students are people first. And I said, whether it's in business or education, we have to value them as people. We have to prepare them for the tough field, give them pivot skills. Give, so I just had all the, and she stacks it. She said, you're amazing. I said, I just gave you a piece of my mind. She goes, but you're spot on. You're right. We need you in this program. And I literally got talked into going into my master's program two days after they started. And I had swore I wasn't ever going to go back to school because I'm not 20 anymore. But that's where we want, we need to start making the difference at the nursing schools, preparing them for what's out there and how to pivot. You don't have to leave nursing. There are so many nursing roles. If you just understand who you are, what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are. And I, then with several nurses who thought they were going to leave. And we just work through what is their why? What are they passionate about? And then let's go and get that. And nurses leave because their environment is incongruent with their value system. And it's too hard. I think what's interesting with what you said is that, so I do executive coaching and I break it down into human skills, conceptual mm -hmm. skills, and technical skills. Mm -hmm. And as I've talked to both nursing educators and physician educators, there's this common theme about that these, these human conceptual skills we need to bring into the practice. But as I've talked to people that create curriculums, I do not know how in the time frame that you have to train a doctor, train a physician, where you want them, not having the technical skills is not acceptable, right? If you look at nurses going into industry, so there's a lot of nurses at McKesson and Cardinal and CVS and all these other places, mm -hmm. they train them. They take responsibility for training them. And of course, they have budgets that can afford to do that too, which is part of this story. Mm -hmm. So I think that one of the things that we need to do is we need to recognize that our, our nurses and doctors need training on these conceptual and human skills. Yes. And because these three skills, human, conceptual, and technical, is what delivers these results. Mm -hmm. And the results, we when quality of manufacturing first started to be challenged by Japan, you'd hear people in the U.S. say, you can have quality or cost. You can have quality or price. And no, we want actually all of it, right? So I define the definition of outcomes for me, which is a healthcare word, is appropriate availability, increased quality, and reducing absolute cost. And I use the word absolute because as a former product manager, I could tell you that I could tell you it will cost cheaper in your department and be more in someone else's later, right? It, it's not a perspective that I was forced to articulate. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, today we need to do that. So with all the changes that are going on and all your education, mm -hmm. how do you keep current on the rapid changes that are going on, particularly in Revenue cycle management, ICD-11's coming, right? So the right, whole right. ICD-10 system yeah. could be thrown out. I don't, do you know if they predicted a date in the U.S. yet? No, let's see. Yeah. World Health Organization, they stamped approval last year. Well, it's yeah. not last year. Now it's 2022. Yeah. I, ha I have not heard when. So I'm going to guess it's five years away. Is five years. Yeah. When I started my other company, it's like we're putting in CDI software and ICD-10 hit the next mm -hmm. one. Then. And again, 
communication, I let my CFO know. I said, okay, we're starting software. ICD 10's hitting. There's going to be some downtime. So you'll see a little lull in your CMI. So case mix index and stuff. The combination of how sick the patients are. And so if you have your professionals who know what they're doing, if they communicate, then the C-suite doesn't do reactionary decision-making. You said there's this two-month lull. You'll have an accurate number here. Then we can. And so I think the, the empowerment, the culture of safety, where you can say to the CFO, if you're a director, this is what I see. This is what my concern is, et cetera. If, if it's okay to question, to suggest, why not have a thousand minds contributing to your success instead of six? And when I was a case manager, I kept coming back from conferences, used to use McKesson software in it. And I, I say, we're losing money and our quality scores could be better if we did this documentation thing. Nah, that costs money. And I had to try to get in the next year and the next year. Finally, by my third year, I asked a company, can you do an analysis and tell me how much money we lost? I think I'll get a, their attention because we're d- deep enough into it. And so in 2008, they saw, oh, we lost 1.4 million and our quality indicators. Okay, here's your 500,000, get this. As these rules are changing, where do you go to keep current? Do you go to Becker's Hospital or? Yes, I definitely am very connected with Becker's and gone in and been there. Our audience loves to hear like specifics of where you go so that they can consider it. Definitely Becker's. And then I was actually on Becker's podcast and I'm also a nurse.com ambassador. So working with nurse.com, which is a national organization, they provide CEUs, free CEUs. And so I have access to a lot of education in that form. And then Becker's is is my go-to, actually. Yeah, it's probably. Because I can quickly go through and go, okay, now I'm going to study and follow those. Are there particular people that you follow in this space? Not in particular. It's more of a, a group or a company. And... The ones that I am following, I can't think of their names right now, but I, I know I follow probably like 2,000 <laughs> people. But now that I'm in my master's right now, I'm not looking as much on the, about ICD-10, more about what am I going to do with that master's? Am I looking for to look to be a leader in a healthcare organization or will I become a professor? And right. kind of put my money where my mouth is. And oh yeah, so you know how we should do it, then come back and make that happen. If you don't think we're paying our nurses enough, an adjunct professor is even worse. I can attest to that. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, okay. I I think just educate yourself. So I the other place I went to, I got my transformative or transformative leadership certificate. So it was a class, Transformative Leadership in Disruptive Times through the UC system. So I took it as a class and then became an advisor for the program. So I think just being in continuous learning and don't stay in an echo chamber. So I guess that's why I'm like, I don't just follow. We can get in an echo chamber in certain perspectives, may not be as broad as it needs to be for ever-changing healthcare. I think this is one of the things you learn when you go back to school is some simple tools that help you recenter your thinking, right? It's like business meditation, if you will. And one of the tools that I remember well was this grid that had people's influence and people's impact on the organization. And it 
yes. if you went to high, you ended up in a critical zone. So when you're going through a change management process, mm-hmm. you realized if you don't have these people on board first, it's it's never going to happen or these departments or mm-hmm. whatever it is that you're doing. The key so, stakeholders. Yeah. So yeah. what's the biggest lesson you've learned thus far? I it, What's interesting is when I do a paper, I'm supposed to list the reference, but I'm the reference. I have the experience in the topic because they're like, okay, address this topic. And you have to have so many references. And I'm like, so for me, I had to adjust my brain to, I've done this. So I'm the reference. Okay, I'll go find. So by going out and finding other references, okay, I, I like that. I like the angle they took on that. And so it's it's back to learning again because it was, I guess it was 10 years ago from when I did formal education. So it's a humbling thing to say, okay, I need to learn, be a student and, and don't get comfortable in what I know. I always seek different perspectives and it just increases the depth and capacity for our future. So when you think of healthcare right now, where do you see the biggest growth opportunities in healthcare today? Through the AI and technology, but being careful not to replace people for the sake of, oh, I bet AI can do this and then find we really compromise our quality of care or reporting. So eyes wide open on how you can integrate and use humans to work more efficiently and effectively with the AI and technology. I've just seen as technology has come in, whether it's EMR, there's a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction. Oh, we don't need Oh, we have CDI software. Oh, then we don't need coders. Eventually, we might not need us. But right now, we need to integrate. And so that's that's what I would say. I think it's going to be about with, with artificial intelligence. I think it's going to start out in two areas. I think it's going to be in the administration, because if AI fails, it's not hurting anybody. And then I think we're going to continue to expand it. And I call it our closed-loop systems in the operating room, because the FDA has Mm. Whether people know it or not, had amazing processes. The Da Vinci robotic systems and the yes. uh, virtual reality systems are uh, very closed looped and highly validated. Mm-hmm. And to get to the point where we say we're going to replace clinical knowledge, we have no validation of the databases and not significant enough. So I think in the short term, mm-hmm. we're probably going to have them be something that reduces the administrator time, hopefully and allows variants to come to people. For example, I'm involved in a precision medicine model and it's just in a narrow segment, but if a doctor's practice has 5,000 patients, it's probably only 10 or 15 that have this situation. You and I could have the same issue. And for Mm -hmm. me, it's a real problem. And for you, it's like nothing. Mm -hmm. And so I think that brings attention to it, but I think that's that's gonna be years away. Telemedicine, we can thank COVID for that. Mm-hmm. It, it's always been a desire and a need, especially in our rural communities. We could not get doctors. We couldn't get staff in these rural hospitals. And when travelers came and we were able to provide, and then we get locum tenants. But finally, with telemedicine and providers can get reimbursed, there's no reason to drag your super sick COVID patient into the office to have them say, yes, you have COVID and expose other people. So technology and people, you know, have made telemedicine more normalized. And in 2016, I said we need to set up our staff to do work remotely. Oh, no, that's going to open a Pandora's box. So many times decisions are made out of fear. 
oh, I'm afraid this is going to happen. So I'm going to stay stagnant in my same safety zone. And I said, we have fires that have either taken staff houses or closed hospital areas. We have now, and this is before COVID. And I said, we need to remain, have the agility. So if we have people who are remote, we can keep operations going and we can't recruit to these high cost of living areas. We'll be able to fulfill that. So just, it took forever. And I finally did a small test of putting one person in a different hospital and finally expanded, got everybody in 12 hospitals for that department remote. And then COVID hit, maybe it was 19, 18, 19, COVID hit like the next year. And my staff are like, all these other people are getting sent home. They don't have work or they're made to go into the hospital. Thank you that you had us remote ahead of time. And so I think whenever we have ideas, we need to have somebody, it's like, okay, give us a crazy idea. And that just keeps us aware and thinking ahead of time. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience? I just think that whatever field you're in, remember someone else is probably going through something and give them a little grace and your communication and your expectation. And my staff, I held them very accountable, but I also was very supportive. So if we can go back to being respectful of each other, regardless of what colors you choose and how you vote. I I love the word that you chose, which is grace. And I I think that there's an amazing person that I, I work with at Carnegie Mellon University who does stuff on diversity. And, you know, where students are right now, it's a bit challenging. She always uses the word grace. Oh. And she defines it as courteous goodwill. Oh. And what she means by that is try to look into the heart and the intention of someone mm-hmm. versus the words that are coming out. Because a 70-year-old person is most <laughs> likely going to say something that in their time and culture was perfectly fine that might be misaligned today. So the question is, are they misaligned in their heart or are they misaligned in some education Mm. on the words that they use? So I I think that's a beautiful uh, perspective. Yeah. So I and I going back to your nurse training, I think that's a great word for how they go through each other, right? Is grace. So yeah, I want to encourage any nurses left healthcare to really analyze how do they feel now? Are they happy? fulfilled and making a difference in the world. I knew someone, she just went to a dress shop and she says, oh, I'm, I'm selling clothes. So is that where you want to? So going out into real estate, that was a good experience for me to go, okay, what do I like about nursing? What can I come back and do? And how can I serve differently? And even with my capstone project with the local hospital, she says, don't worry, you'll get your hours. I said, no, I don't want to just get my hours. I want to make a difference. I want it to be worth it. I and so I'm going to be working on physician communication, the channels within their EMR, your text, and making sure nurses aren't bombarding them, but making sure they're not giving orders over. So, okay, we've got this project. Let's make a difference. So I think as students, let's make a difference. Let's learn. Let's contribute. And don't just clock it in. Be there when you're there. And if you don't want to be there anymore, do something different. But be in in motion and in a positive contribution around you. And I do think that we so we certainly have a lot of baby boomer nurses that are retiring and and not coming back. But I think the the younger generation, so first of all, you've never met anyone who didn't go into nursing that didn't care about people in their heart. That's why they're there, that's what they want to do, right? 
And so part of their burnout and their leaving is because they were doing more of other things and they were actually doing the thing that they were passionate about. Mm-hmm. And so I think between that, between the pressures of COVID, between the pressures of pricing, that I think eventually what's going to happen is these techniques that you're talking about, this need to understand that the nurses have a lot of knowledge to help you run your systems better with the need to get them back, I think hopefully mm-hmm. will change the environment. And one of the things I love about nursing, like my, my kids that are in it, I, I always said you can, it's one of the few careers where if you want to take a year off, you can step out okay. and you can come back in. Mm-hmm. But likewise, a vice president of marketing, Jane J, if I'm, if I've left for five years, oh yeah, I, I can't come back. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's a great career from that perspective. And if you need a break, take it. But I think what's going to happen is a lot of these folks to your person, in the dress shop are going to realize in their heart, they want to help people. And that's not necessarily it. So mm-hmm. I hope the system will be ready to, to re-receive them. That's great. Thank, thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to the Chalk Talk Gym podcast. For resources, show notes, and ways to get in touch, visit us at chalktalkgym.com.